Yeah, we just thank you for your presence. We thank you, Spirit of God, that you are hovering over this room. And whenever you hover, you create. And you transform, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that that hovering spirit just fall upon Nigel, Lord, and fall upon his words. And as he speaks forth, may they create. May they transform. May they bring transformation and change, God. In your mighty name. Amen. 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 Thanks, guys. As Paul said, we're starting a new series called Surrender. I'll explain more about that in a minute. If you have a Bible or the access to a Bible, I'd love you to turn up John, the book of John, chapter 12. Um, We're going to read from there in a moment. I'm just making my notes bigger so I can actually see them. Right. Great. We've just sung these words uh, earlier today. There's a joy that comes in letting go. When we lose ourselves, we find your love. We want you and we want nothing more. So, the question is, put your hand up if you meant it. No, I'm just teasing. You don't, I'm not going to be that embarrassing. But actually, it's a great shout, isn't it? What do we mean when we say there's a joy that comes in letting go? When we lose ourselves, we find your love. I mean, I love that song. I think it's fantastic. And it captures something that I really want to say to God. All the best worship songs do. We want you and we want nothing more. Break the pride that hinders us. Now for the real thing. I'm doing a Mark, Mark um, Isles, aren't I? I want more than shallow lives. Um, we've been looking at what it means to grow in generosity. And one of the key points under building generosity is to us to say that God doesn't need our money. He doesn't, he's not interested in our money. He's interested in our hearts. What we do with our resources demonstrates where our hearts are at. And God's interested in our hearts. He doesn't need our money. And if we, I was just thinking as we were sitting in the Lord's presence, that if we consistently expect or want to enjoy the presence of God, if we consistently want to spend time in it, it is going to cost us something. If my kids want to consistently be with me, hanging out with me, it's going to cost them something. I don't mean that I want all the money back that I've invested in them over their lives. Maybe when I'm very old, I might need some of it, but, but, but that's not the point. I don't want their money. I want their hearts. As a dad, and particularly those of you whose kids have grown up and left home, you'll know this, that what you want more than anything else is your kids to decide to come back and just relate with you on a healthy adult-to-adult level. Just be a friend. I mean, okay, they're still your kids. They might want your advice from time to time. They might even want your money from time to time. But actually, it's not that that's the point, is it? The point is our hearts. And when my kids come and say, I'm here, I just want to hang with you. And my, one of my sons is at university, and he come, he's coming home. Hooray, he's coming home this week, actually. Um, when he said, told his friends at uni that he was going home, this is last time out, Christmas, I think, for a couple of weeks. The reaction of some of his friends was, why would you go home for that long? Why would you go home for a couple of weeks? And some other people's reaction and response was, I wouldn't do that, home's got nothing for me. To which my son replied, well, my parents are there and I want to go hang out with my family. And I was really shocked when he told me that, actually. And the fridge is full, Joe says. (laughs) 
So today we're going to begin this, it's a short series and it's going to take us over Easter and it's called Multiply Surrender. And I'm just going to jump straight in. Definition of surrender. This is what surrender means. It means to stop resisting. It means to submit to authority. It means to give up or hand something over. It means to give up possession of or power over. It means to yield to another or to give up a claim to something. Now, there are two sides to surrender. It's a powerful concept to surrender. And if you look on, online at sort of surrender points in history, you'll see that some of them have made history. You know, the one that comes to my mind when I was looking it up was the Falkland Islands War, which I was a kid when that happened. Um, but I remember that, and it was a powerful image. And the image of a white flag and sur- the whole point of surrender, it signifies the point at which a conflict ends. Most conflicts end with one party or the other surrendering, letting go of their need for power or control or resources. And I guess the point is that when I think of that word surrender, that can feel like quite a weak thing to do. That can feel like a point of weakness. And actually, you know, there are times when it's not appropriate to surrender, but instead to stay and stand your ground in the face of unfair or abusive behavior the last thing to do is to surrender that's true on a personal level it's true on a corporate scale it's not always the right thing to do to surrender we even see that in Jesus's life Jesus encountered opposition from the devil when he was in the um, desert and he did not surrender Jesus encountered quite often conflict and opposition with the Jewish authorities and he did not surrender to their wishes he didn't surrender to what they wanted he stayed and stood their ground although obviously ultimately when it came to the cross Jesus did surrender because on the other hand the act of surrendering the act of giving up your rights giving up your power or control that's a powerful action when it comes to relationships to say effectively my life is no longer entirely my own my resources are now not just mine but yours as well I'm not in control is one of the most powerful statements we can ever make to show somebody else how much we love and value them. It's a vulnerable place to be, but it's a powerful place to be. It's what I said when I married Joe. I surrender. Not quite like that, but, you know, that, that, that came out wrong. I must stop saying things that I didn't previously write down. That didn't come out right. But it is the basis of all healthy relationships, be it marriages, close friendships. And any healthy relationship will or partnership will require some kind of surrender. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus was surrendered to what God, his father, wanted him to do. There are three examples of things Jesus said where he was surrendering. He was surrendering to the will of the face. He said, I only do what God wants me to do. He wasn't here to do his own agenda. He was here to do God's agenda. He said, I, don't, I only do the will of him who sent me. Ultimately, that in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but yours. And Jesus also invites his followers to a life of surrender. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. He said, if you love me, you'll keep your, my commands. He said, if you, if you don't renounce all, anyone of you, well, that doesn't make sense. Sorry, I missed a bit of a few words out there. If anyone who doesn't renounce all that he has, all that he has, that's what, oh, the full stop's in the wrong place. I'm so sorry. 
Anyone of you who does not renounce all that, stop, no, all that he has cannot be my disciples. I don't know why that full stop ended up there. Um, let's look at two stories which involve surrender. And this is John chapter 12. And oh, I've jumped ahead. Okay, John chapter 12, verses 1. I'm going to read them out. I'm going to read through to about 16 or maybe 19. Six days before the Passover began, Jesus went back to Bethany, the town where he raised Lazarus from the dead. They had prepared a supper for Jesus. Martha served, and Lazarus and Mary were among those at the table. Mary picked up an alabaster jar filled with nearly a liter of extremely rare and costly perfume, the purest extract of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet. Then she wiped them dry with her long hair, and the fragrance of the costly oil filled the house. But Judas the locksmith, Simon's son, the betrayer, spoke up and said, What a waste. We could have sold this perfume for a fortune and given the money to the poor. In fact, Judas had no heart for the poor. He only said this because he was a thief and in charge of the money case. He would steal money whenever he wanted from the funds given to support Jesus' ministry. Jesus said to Judas, leave her alone. She saved it for a time, for the time of my burial. You'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. When the word got out that Jesus was not far from Jerusalem, a large crowd came out to see him, and they also wanted to see Lazarus. <coughs> Excuse me, the man who Jesus had raised from the dead. This prompted the chief priests to seal their plans to do away with both Jesus and Lazarus, for his miracle testimony was incontrovertible and was persuading many of the Jews living in Jerusalem to believe in Jesus. The next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the massive crowd gathered for the feast. So they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Everyone was shouting, Lord, be our savior. Blessed is the one who comes to us, sent from Jehovah God, the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it to fulfill what was prophesied. People of Zion, have no fear. Look, it's your king coming to you, riding on a young donkey. Now, Jesus' disciples didn't fully understand the importance of what was taking place. But after he was raised and exalted into glory, they understood how Jesus had fulfilled all the prophecies in the scriptures that were written about him. We'll leave it there. Here are two examples of surrender, (coughs) both involving Jesus' feet. Symbolic act of surrender. So the first one is that Mary pours this very, very, very expensive perfume, oil, all over Jesus' feet. It's really hard for us to relate to this because I can't think of anywhere in our culture where this really happens. It feels like a culturally removed thing. But nard was a very expensive perfume. It was used for anointing the dead. The suggestion is that Mary had this on hand in case it was needed for the anointing of a dead family member or a close friend. In fact, Jesus suggests that she's saving it for my burial because Jesus is a very close friend of Mary. In the previous chapter, Mary's brother Lazarus has been raised from the dead by Jesus. And it says, doesn't it? It says the authorities have made their plot known that they are on the lookout for Jesus. So Jesus' days are numbered and those who are in the know are probably aware of this. Mary probably knows that Jesus is likely to be captured. And so instead of waiting for him to die and to be buried, she decides to anoint his feet there and then. It's an extraordinary act of love and devotion. No Jewish woman would touch a man who wasn't their husband. 
let alone take their hair down and wipe his feet with it. It's an unprecedented level of intimacy. And yet there's no suggestion of sexual inappropriateness. This is an act of extreme sacrifice, extreme surrender. I imagine that most other people in the room felt awkward and embarrassed when this happened. And we see that played out. The one who voices some of the opposition is Judas. You need, so 300 denarii, which is what it cost, it's about a year's wages. A year's wages. But Jesus was absolutely fine with that. And he saw her heart and he totally appreciated where Mary was coming from. And he totally didn't appreciate Judas's comments. This is what um, Tom Wright, who's a Bible scholar, has to say about this, about John's account of this. John suggests that Mary had been keeping this expensive perfume to anoint Jesus' body after death. In other words, she may be saying in her action more than she knows. Her act of love is a prophetic statement about the fact that before too long, Jesus is going to be buried. And buried so hastily that there might not be time for proper anointing. So he'd better have it right away. It suggests, on the other hand, Tom Wright goes on to say, that Mary should now keep it, anything that's left of it, for the day of Jesus' burial. And that this purpose will be more important even than selling it and giving it to the poor. In other words, if she hadn't done what she had just did, it would have still been appropriate to hang on to it for that all-important occasion. That's Tom Wright's view of this passage of what Jesus is saying in this passage that's quite challenging in other words Jesus is saying my death and my burial and doing that properly is more important on this occasion than giving the money to the poor Jesus is that's what Jesus seems to be saying and John's commentary on Judas by the way is pretty brutal isn't it he was a thief and his motives were completely skewed That's what John said about Judas, his fellow disciple. Don't forget, John is writing this some years later, so he's looking back on events. Another thing to say is that Mary is called Mary of Bethany, and Bethany means a house of the poor. So there's no suggestion here that the poor weren't being properly looked after. Jesus seems to be saying that even if you, she hadn't poured it on my feet, it would still be appropriate to keep it for my burial. That's a hard thing to translate into today's context. But the principle that's going on makes me think of this word squander. I mean, so what's happening with this perfume, this oil, this nard, this thing of absolute expense value? I suppose that my question is, what is the price of love? Can you put a price on love and devotion? Because an act of surrender or sacrifice only really has meaning when it really costs something. And when that's towards somebody you really love. Jesus was prepared to surrender his whole life. And if we love Jesus that much, what are we going to give up in order to demonstrate our love back to him? (laughs) little thought experiment here what could you do with a year's wages just imagine I don't whatever your wages are that you've got a whole year's wages just saved up spare over here somewhere remember it's not really about the amount or the money it's about the heart 
Where am I in this story? Am I soft heart of love and devotion? Or am I a hard heart of religion and fear? I mean, how does an ordinary person get a year's wages saved up anyway? It's either a gift or you've earned it, saved it. Hard savings. Imagine, I was just trying to imagine what, if I had a year's wages sitting on the side, what I might choose to spend it on. It might be a special family occasion, like a celebration or a wedding or a special holiday or something. It might be home improvements, like a house extension or developments. It might be lifestyle or luxury items, like a new car or smart clothes. Or, or maybe Jesus might ask me to do something else with it. We've had, I don't think I've ever given away a year's wages, but I have given to Jesus some significant amounts of money in my life, which could have gone on any of those things. The question is, am I prepared to spend things or to give my time or energy to things which others might think of as a bit wasteful or maybe inappropriate or even embarrassing? Because for me, investing in God's kingdom, there's no visible gain. There's no obvious benefit apart from the benefit of all eternity. A friend of mine used to say that there's a kingdom principle, which is that it's about sowing into things that you can't name or control. About giving to things because Jesus has invited you to do that. That's time or energy or money where you don't get anything back and you don't get any control. And we've always tried to apply that principle to our money and to our time and energy. It's meant giving money to people who are working with some of the poorest communities in the world, not knowing if that will have a long-term impact, hoping and praying that it will. It's meant investing time and energy into lots and lots of young people. You heard the story last week that I was telling you about DTI. It's meant investing into the lives of other churches and other projects in the city that we're in and in the previous city as well, like chaplaincy and Christmas projects and Easter projects. It's meant doing things because it felt like what Jesus was inviting us to do, knowing that it wouldn't necessarily bring any glory or benefit or payback to us. Now, I don't do that because I'm trying to earn favor with God. I'm not trying to tick a box or pass a test. I'm not trying to get him to put in a good word for me when I die. It's not about buying influence. I was listening to something about how politicians do that this week. How about how it's all about a trade and about how somebody will give money to your political party and, and hope, hope you know you have to register that. Otherwise, there's an accusation that, that you could be giving them some benefit back in kind. It's not about all that. It's purely and simply an act of love for Jesus in response to what he's done for us and what he's calling us to. That's what devotion is. That's what devotion looks like. It looks like loving much. There's a, there's a guy in Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 2, called Cornelius. He's a centurion. And there's a whole story about him and about how Peter ends up going to his house. Um, and this man was a God-fearing man. Um, and eventually he found out about Jesus. And there's a whole story about that, but that's not the point. Um, there's just this one verse, and it says, He and his family were devout. And God-fearing. Now, devout comes from the same root as devotion. And it then explains what that means. It means he gave generously to those in need and he prayed to God regularly. This is a guy who didn't even know Jesus. And yet his devotion to God meant that he gave to those in need and prayed regularly. 
The secret of devotion is loving much. It's loving practically. It's, it's showing your love for something or someone by demonstrating it. That's what surrender and sacrifice looks like. There's a second story that we looked at, and that's the crowd and the palm branches. Today is Palm Sunday, after all. Um, we haven't got any palm branches to wave. But there's the story. And this idea of waving palm branches symbolically, it conveys the idea of victory over the enemy. And that it, when Jesus was around, there was a, an event in history, 150 years beforehand, which is well known in Jewish history. And it concerns a guy called Judas Maccabeus, who fought a revolution and defeated pagan invaders and cleansed the temple. And his followers, his followers, Judas's, entered the city waving palm branches in celebration. Unfortunately, it didn't last for him, and he was. Um, but but the reason that these people are waving palm branches is they think that Jesus is a revolutionary leader, and they also use the language of Psalm 18. They say, "Hosanna, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." This is from the Old Testament. This is language that ties Jesus to the promised Messiah, to the king from David's reign. That's that's what that means, and so they use the phrase "King of Israel." They say, this is the king of Israel. And most of the crowd probably understood that title, that king of Israel title, in political and military terms. And they also hoped that Jesus was the promised Messiah from the scriptures. But I think if we're honest, they probably hoped that he would use his powers to resist Roman rule and lead an independence revolution. That's what the people thought Jesus was going to do. Jesus never suggested that. His disciples only later realized what he was really saying. And when he was later arrested, those disciples that had followed him all the way on this journey, they were surprised and shocked and upset. That nobody was expecting him to get arrested and then killed. John is very clear in verse 16 that it was only later that the disciples really understood what had been going on. Despite misunderstanding who Jesus was and what he would do, still there is no doubt to the devotion of this crowd. They've heard something about Jesus' incredible miracles. I mean, he's just raised a guy from the dead. That's not an everyday occurrence. Lazarus has walked out of a grave and everyone's going, This guy, he's coming. Is this the Messiah? Is this the guy? He must be amazing. This must be God. This must be God's man. And so what do they do? They, they wave their palm branches and they also throw their palm branches down onto the ground in front of him. And they throw their cloaks down in front of him. They hail Jesus as their king. They are bowing down to him. In Luke's account of this same story, the Pharisees tell Jesus, hey, make your disciples be quiet. They're causing a, stir, a disturbance, and they're talking nonsense. Shut them up. And Jesus' response to the Pharisees is, if I shut them up, even the rocks would cry out. Again, Jesus stands up for those who are taking, their tr- taking the trouble to demonstrate their love and devotion physically, practically, and publicly. We've got two very clear acts of surrender, a personal one from Mary and a public one from the crowd. And in each story, symbolically, things are being placed at the feet of Jesus. So the question for us is, what are we placing at Jesus' feet today? What does surrender look like for us, for you and for me?
And this isn't a one-off question, by the way. This is an ongoing question that needs to be asked of us every time we enter into God's presence. Every time we're on our own, or whether we're on our own or in a crowd, every time we sit down just to pray, just to be with him, every time we gather for worship, every time we remember his death and resurrection, which we're going to do through communion in just a moment. I don't have the, chapter, I don't have the slide for this, but Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Worship is surrender. Worship is surrender. If we want to have God's presence near us and with us, it's going to require us to do something. It's going to cost us something. As Paul said to us earlier, the kingdom of God is at hand. We have to reach out. Let me read you a quote by, in fact, I've got it up here, a man called William Temple. Worship is a submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all this gathered up in adoration. Surrender is a choice that we make. It's voluntary, and we have the choice not to surrender. We could give in to the fear, or we could choose to trust him. It's an opportunity to partner with God and trust him with my obedience. There may well be embarrassment. We might look foolish. Oh, and there will always be opposition. There'll always be somebody, even if it's just a voice in your head, that says, is this really a good idea? Are you really okay with this? Are you not afraid that you'll lose out somewhere? But as we've sung already this morning, there's a joy that comes in letting go when we lose ourselves and find your love. So I suppose the question is, do we want the real thing? Full commitment requires consistency. It requires us to surrender day after day, Week after week, month after month. You've probably heard me say this before. You don't don't just choose to follow Jesus once in your life. You choose to follow Jesus every day. There's a surrender moment every day. Perhaps several times a day. And so what is it that we are going to relinquish control of as our act of devotion to God today? Are there any areas of our life where they're not? fully surrendered are there any areas of our life which are no-go areas for Jesus we're like oh yeah you can come you can have this but you can have this but but not not that are there any doors that are just closed and we don't want to open them because it's just too painful I made a list of things that I could think of that we could surrender it's not an exhaustive list but to make it interesting I tried to put it on a word cloud This is my list in no particular order. We could surrender our plans, our dreams, our future, our relationships, our family, our friends, our spouse, our children, our employment, our money, our financial provision, our gifts, our talents, our material possessions, our future earning potential, our dignity, our reputation, our popularity, our pride, our position, our publicity, our profile. 
Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, then take up his cross. He was prepared to surrender his life. And he expects us to do the same. So what is it that we think that God is inviting us to do today? We're going to come to communion in a moment. I have one more quote to read you. Um, and it's a, it's a fairly full-on quote, but I think it's a good thing to reflect on as we come into communion. And it's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who himself, uh, if you don't know his story, very much a man who, was able, who, who gave up his life. This was a, 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 a priest in Germany who ended up in a concentration camp and ended up dying in a concentration camp. He wrote this, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world it is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ as we embark upon discipleship we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death we give over our lives to death thus it begins the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I think that's a really good moment to go into communion, actually. Would you stand with me?